From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Bullying is an epidemic that can follow children into their teens and young adulthood, often with few places to turn for help. In the LGBTQ community, individuals are even more so targeted, harassed, and tormented for their identities. In an already marginalized population, bullying can lead to anxiety, depression, and make children feel unsafe at school. Thanks to a pilot grant from Harvard Catalyst, Dr. Sari Reisner of Boston Children's Hospital and his team developed an intervention to improve the resources and support that LGBTQ teens receive at school. Sari, welcome. I'm just going to ask for everybody here in the room to just go around and introduce themselves. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in this Catalyst pilot grant project. Um, so can we start at the end with Jeff here? Yes, I'm uh, Jeff Parati. I'm with the Safe Schools Program for LGBTQ Students, and that's a joint initiative between the Mass Department of Elementary and Secondary Education and the Mass Commission on LGBTQ Youth. And uh, so I've been involved with that program since the 90s when the program began. And uh, so Sarah and I have been working together on uh, doing research about the strategies that support LGBTQ students in schools. So that's how I got involved. Um, I'm Landon Callahan. I've worked with the Safe Schools Program for LGBTQ uh, students since I was in high school uh, when I transitioned from female to male. Um, and I got involved in the project through Jeff. Um, he had suggested that this might be something that I would be interested in and could have some experiences to offer. So that's kind of how I got involved in, in doing this specific project. Um, I'm Kira Houston. I also work with the Safe Schools Program for LGBTQ students. Um, and I also got involved in high school when I transitioned from female to male. And uh, I've done a lot of different work uh, with the organization throughout the years. So um, I just got involved because of my school GSA leader who recommended it to me. And then that's how I was introduced to this project. And I should have said, I'm Jeff. I use he and him pronouns. Oh, yeah. I also use he, him. I also use he, him. Um, my name's Sari. I also use he, him. And um, I, uh, I'm excited to be part of this project and to be here with the team. Um, I uh, first got involved in this actually through a, uh, a uh, symposium that happened at Boston Children's Hospital. And Jeff, you were part of that bullying symposium, uh, which really was uh, funded by Harvard Catalyst and looking to raise awareness around bullying, specifically LGBTQ youth bullying. Um, and out of that came an opportunity for us to do a study, uh, really addressing some of the issues that came out in the symposium. Uh, and one of those really was around uh, how can we engage all people who are in schools as potential advocates and points of intervention, so including school health professionals. So that is how we uh, came to, to this project. So you mentioned that the project is about um, LGBTQ bullying, and it came out of a symposium that Harvard Catalyst ran. Um, I want to get a sense of what the types of bullying that people are experiencing 
um, in schools. And you look you looked at schools in the Boston area in Massachusetts. In Massachusetts, mm-hmm. okay. So um, maybe Landon, Kira, and Jeff, you can help us understand sort of what does LGBTQ bullying look like? What are people going through? And feel free if you want to share a personal story. Um, feel free to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, when I was growing up, I feel like I dealt with more bullying before I transitioned um, because there was a lot of confusion around gender identity and sexual orientation. So a lot of the bullying that I experienced, which wasn't you know nearly as much as a lot of other LGBTQ people face, um, but it was more in terms of people perceiving me as being a lesbian and not as a transgender guy. So it was hard because I knew that I wasn't that, but I knew that I was something similar. Um, so I think a lot of it was just around ignorance. And this was also, you know, years ago when there wasn't as much publicity around trans people or understanding. Um, but I think now from what I've seen doing the work in schools, you know, social media and online bullying and harassment can be, you know, a thing starting in, in middle school or elementary school. So I think a lot of it is just confusion around gender identity versus sexual orientation and how those two things are different. Um, But again, you know, in my experience, after I transitioned, um, people weren't as likely to bully me, I think mostly because I was more confident and I wasn't really a target. Um, Not to say that people didn't understand, but I think it also was due to me now being seen as a man in society. I think that that also played a, a piece in when people chose to disrespect me or not. Hmm. And you said you transitioned in high school? Yeah, I transitioned my sophomore year of high school. I started the school year um, like kind of halfway transitioned. And then by February, I had like changed my name and done all that stuff. Yeah, so um, I, I also transitioned my sophomore year of high school, by the way. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky that I didn't have any experiences with bullying in my high school. I come from a very small high school um, where we all kind of know each other. But, you know, working with the Safe Schools program, I've heard a lot of stories from other students. And as, as Landon would say, was saying, sort of people um, intentionally misgendering trans students can also be a problem and just sort of not really understanding the nuance with which trans people sort of have to deal with our identities. And especially through high school, if, if you're a trans person who is transitioning or struggling to find your identity, it can be really harmful for other students who really don't understand that and are like, you know, purposefully calling you by the wrong name or just refusing to to accept your pronouns. Um, so yeah, I think so- that's something that trans people face a lot. And, you know, that's something that we try to talk about in the project with um, making sure that schools can be aware of how transgender students could should be treated through their transition and how you can sort of help them along there. Yeah, I think teachers also don't know how to intervene a lot of times. Like, if students were saying something that was ignorant or, you know, coming from a mean place, teachers didn't know the answer to that. So it was kind of on me or the other trans students are kind of, well, it's your job to kind of educate them instead of having the teachers and the staff already know how to approach these topics um, because they don't really know, you know, what is an appropriate question and what isn't because they might have not had a close personal experience with a transgender person who could tell them, hey, you know, you shouldn't ask transgender people about, you know, their medical history or about their previous names. Like those are inappropriate, but teachers don't know where that line is oftentimes. So I think starting from the top, having teachers understand how to answer those questions and be able to decide what's what's bullying and what's genuine curiosity, that could be a teaching moment. And like you said, you know, you can kind of tell the intention behind somebody purposefully misgendering someone or somebody just really not understanding it and getting it, but they're trying. And I think having teachers 
being able to kind of tell those contexts is important as well. You talked about, you know, intentional misgendering and sort of that, uh, those questions that cross the line between genuine curiosity and more mean spirited. Um, what are, what are some other ways that not just transgender people, but other LGBTQ, uh, other people in who don't, you know, conform to the male, female gender binary. What are some other ways, Jeff, that that type of bullying presents itself in schools? Oh, I think you just, uh, you actually um, just spoke to it by um, mentioning those people and those students who don't conform to traditional gender roles. I think they're the ones who are most vulnerable to mistreatment and sexual orientation. When you're talking about uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or lesbian, gay, bisexual, pansexual, uh, that those are students who don't conform to traditional gender roles in whom they're supposed to be attracted to. So yeah. I think that... Um, beginning very early on the students who don't that have a gender expression that's non-traditional uh, uh, are the ones who are often most vulnerable to mistreatment um, i think that sometimes uh like what landon was just talking about about teachers not having the skills to interrupt um, or respond to uh, mistreatment or negative language or hurtful language we spend time just having teachers practice how they might respond when they hear language like that's so gay or other language where gay is being used in a negative way or other derogatory terms to describe um, different sexual orientations or gender identities. So we talk about stop it, name it, claim it, giving a very simple strategy to teachers like that's unacceptable, that's unkind in our classroom. We don't use language like that and that personally hurts me. So stopping it, naming it, claiming it. Um, I think that the other, uh, that although Landon, you both and Kira talked about not being personally uh, the objects of targets of mistreatment. I know that um, I've heard you talk about what you've witnessed online yeah. and in response to, let's say, graduation gowns changing and how transgender people were targeted and not necessarily you individually, but maybe you could say something about that. Yeah, I mean, I think um, a big difference with dealing with mistreatment before I transitioned, I considered, you know, people mistreating me as bullying. And then afterwards, um, you know, in high school, a lot of the mistreatment around being trans wasn't a personal attack, it was insult against the community, but, you know, not you specifically. Um, so when my school changed gowns to have one color um, instead of, you know, boys wearing one gown, girls wearing the other, I personally was the only out transgender student in my graduating class, but I did know several students who were closeted. Um, and so because I was the only out student, people were saying, why do we have to change it all because of this one student? Do you even want this to happen? It was kind of, well, this is up to me when really I would have worn the the male gown. My family is really supportive. It, it wouldn't have been an issue at all, but it wasn't about me. And it wasn't just about the other closeted trans students. It was about every student not having to feel like they have to be in a box. Um, and so online there was kind of that harassment, but I didn't really consider it bullying because I didn't really take any of it seriously. Like I, I was aware enough to know that this wasn't about me and that I'm about to leave high school and I won't have to deal with this. But for other kids who were closeted, you know, they had messaged me on Facebook saying, you know, I'm sorry, people are saying this, you know, I'm afraid to have to deal with this next year. And it, it was kind of on my shoulders, but I knew that when I heard other people getting bullied for being like me, that still hurt me. So there is kind of an outward effect of even if this one student might be handling it well, other students are still hearing it. They're still going to be in a climate where they know that 
this is the popular opinion that trans people are, you know, causing a burden or disrupting tradition or things like that. So a lot of it, again, was online. And then I would go to school and no one would say anything um, because I think it was kind of hid behind. Well, these are my opinions. I can say what I want, but it's not about you personally. And I think that that's where people get confused of, well, I don't hate anyone individually, but they still might have these ideas that really do come down to not accepting people. Um, so that was kind of my experience. I also went to a tech school where it was very gendered. So boys who would go into things like cosmetology um, or medical or dental, that was a big kind of target on their back that they had to prove either I am heterosexual, I'm doing this for, you know, purely enjoyment or have to deal with the fact that people are going to call them, you know, oh, you're gay or, you know, you're too feminine, things like that. So I was actually in a more feminine shop, I guess. It was female dominated in early education. And I didn't really face too much of that backlash. Um, and I think it might have been because I was trans. Um, but I did have a good experience, even though I was one of the only guys in that shop. Um, I felt like it wasn't negating my gender identity. But I know that for some people, going into one of those areas is going to be a reason for targeting harassment, especially young men who are going into cosmetology, things like that. I mean, I think that really speaks to um, the piece around gender norms, right. you know, specifically not just transgender, but folks who, with their gender expression, how people are manifesting behaviorally and socially um, their gender. And um, and that is certainly one of the things that we see across LGBTQ populations uh, is that gender expression, uh, a non-conforming gender expression, if you will, or, or not one that doesn't fit the societal um, expectations of male, female in the way that they should, um, that those are associated with worse health outcomes. And we see that in young people and we see that uh, in adulthood as well. Mm -hmm. And um, as far as the, the nature of bullying goes, um, there was a survey, uh, the GLSEN survey, the Gay and Lesbian Straight Education Network survey. Uh, and that survey of more than 23,000 national uh, US students found uh, that overall 87% experienced some form of bullying. Um, and that bullying was related to sexual orientation. It was related to gender identity expression. Um, and, uh, you know, things not only verbally, um, as, as people were saying and talking about being called slurs or hearing the word gay used in a pejorative way, um, but also physical harassment, uh, including, you know, punching and shoving. Um, we talked a bit about cyberbullying, so online um, bullying. Uh, and then social and relational bullying. So this is, um, I think, really ubiquitous in terms of the prevalence of it is about 90%. But it's really like when people are uh, gossiped about or, you know, there's some social relational piece um, that's damaging. Spread People are spreading rumors, those kinds of things. And that is a very common, unfortunately, occurrence for LGBTQ youth. Um, in our study that we did, we found uh, similar proportion and distribution. So 82% of, of the folks in our study reported um, being bullied. So, you know, certainly uh, those experiences remain prevalent, despite the kind of more visible nature of LGBTQ communities. Unfortunately, um, we still see those experiences. And that's really why we um, did this project. So I, I, we can definitely come back to, to that issue. Um, but I wanted to, Sarah, you mentioned the study that you did. Um, and I want to talk about that. Before I do, could you tell us a little bit about um, the type of work that your lab does? You're based at Children's Hospital. 
That's right. Um, could you talk about your lab and the work that you do? Yeah. Um, so I'm at Children's Hospital, and uh, in that role, uh, I have a research program focused on disparities uh, and inequities, actually, because they're driven and remediable uh, by social factors, the way that my research views it, um, and really focused around um, sexual and gender minority populations, so LGBTQ populations. Sexual and gender minority is a phrase that came out of the National Institutes of Health um, in 2016. Uh, and uh, sexual and gender minority people were termed a health disparities population for the purposes of research because the burden is so great in terms of differences when we look at um, LGBTQ and non-LGBTQ people. So sexual and gender minorities, that's an NIH term. Who does that include? That includes all of the L, the B, the G, the uh, all of the alphabet letters that we have. So basically people who are not necessarily identified as straight or uh, who are not cisgender, meaning not transgender, who have a sex aligned at birth that's similar to their gender. Um, and um, who am I missing? All of the wonderful celebratory diverse identities that fall in that umbrella of LGBTQ. And why did you become interested in working on LGBTQ health disparities? Yeah, I mean, it's such a uh, historically um, marginalized and underserved group population. And um, there has been a lot of work in health disparities, you know, uh, importantly around um, race and ethnicity and uh, religion and very important other aspects of identity. And unfortunately, um, LGBTQ status has not been something that we've heard as much about. So um, I guess I'm always a fight for the underdog. And because I'm a part of that community uh, and one of those underdogs, I have been particularly interested in it. So let's talk about the project, some details. So um, you looked at LGBTQ bullying. You did a study um, tell us about the goals of the project and sort of how you gathered data, what types of data you were gathering. Yeah, so the goal of the project was to develop uh, and pilot an intervention, uh, sort of program that would be uh, uh, used to help intervene on bullying. So this would be specifically looking at the experiences of school health professionals, so like school nurses, school psychologists, guidance counselors, uh, and to look at the experiences that youth were having in relation to those providers or healthcare professionals in a school setting. And why did you choose that? I mean, when we just talked about the bullying in schools, um, uh, Landon, you mentioned teachers mm -hmm. kind of not having the language or um, tools to intervene, but you're looking at the health professionals. So why did you choose them? Um, well, when we I spoke about the symposium um, earlier, uh, School health professionals were an area of personnel that people felt would be important, right? They're in schools, um, they're there all the time uh, and present. Also, um, youth that are experiencing bullying sometimes have symptoms such as um, distress, mental health distress, sometimes somatization, right? So people are feeling sick. And so the place where a student would go when they're not feeling well is the nurse. So it's a, a logical um, sort of direction and route. They also probably have more of a direct communication with that student long-term. Uh, teachers, they're going to have the daily interactions, but they have, you know, maybe 100 students that they're dealing with. I think, like you said, like a lot of the mental health issues come up. So those are the folks that are going to be dealing with a student who might have been hospitalized or a student who is really struggling with, you know, academics or attendance. So to have them have that language, they might have more of a capacity to have a long-term relationship with that student, maybe throughout all their years at that school. 
nurses and uh, mental health professionals within schools are often the change agents within the schools to spearhead efforts to change the school climate. Just today, I got a call from a school nurse saying, you know, we really need to be addressing this at our school. Could you come in and do a faculty training in the fall? And they're the ones often doing the political work to navigate the system, to get the support, to have time dedicated to help to build the awareness, the knowledge, the comfort, the confidence of other school professionals within the school too. So the study then sought to um, speak with youth and gather some experiences. We did uh, online focus groups uh, and a quantitative survey with 28 youth. And then we sought also to hear from school health professionals and hear about some of their experiences and the barriers and facilitators to addressing student bullying. And we talked to 19 uh, school health professionals using those same methodologies. So what kind of things came out of those conversations and focus group? Um, you know, really there were, uh, the first pieces were really around the ubiquitousness of bullying that the youth are facing. So the highly prevalent and happening and different kinds of bullying. Um, one of the things that came up that was surprising or, or perhaps um, disturbing was around sexual harassment specifically, uh, particularly uh, trans youth reporting that. Um, so we found that we also uh, importantly we talk about intersectionality, and so people are experiencing bullying, youth are experiencing bullying, not just due to a single identity, but to multiple identities, right? Because we all occupy different social locations, so due to race and due to sexual orientation. And so we found that in our sample as well. Um, in terms of school health professionals, you know, we really did find structural barriers to uh, intervening. Um, some of those were around time and um, the sort of how much time they had available with students, administrative support. Um, uh, some, uh, some of them were more interpersonal, so around uh, trust, gaining trust of students. Uh, one issue that came up was about follow through. So students would report and felt like there wasn't follow through um, that would continue uh, to be able to address the issue. Uh, and then individually, it really was around skills and knowledge and attitudes. And those are some of the amazing work that Jeff and, 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 and the youth do together is really helping to fill those gaps around knowledge and, and skills. Mm. One thing that we found was that, that from both students and from professionals was uh, the recognition that, that LGBTQ students had specific needs that needed to be taken into account. And that's what really fueled the development of the instrument that we developed to for nurses and counselors regarding things they should be aware of and paying attention to. Because, um, well, uh, just like people have been referred to, we have the, also the data from the Massachusetts Youth Risk Behavior Survey, which shows that LGBTQ students are at least twice as likely to report having been bullied or mistreated at school than their heterosexual or cisgender peers, um, much more likely to say they've skipped school because they haven't felt safe, that they've carried a weapon to school, um, along with the self-harm uh, attempted suicides, and uh, and also saying that they're three times as likely to have experienced sexual assault, like Sari said. Um, but I think that the one the one piece of data that we sometimes get lost that that sometimes gets lost that uh, that really uh, spoke to this particular study and um, instrument that we developed is that since we started administering the survey, students who identified who have identified as sexual minorities have said that they're have reported that they're much more likely not to have received sex education or HIV education in school when their heterosexual counterparts in the same classroom with the same teacher in the same semester will say they have. 
because it's not inclusive of them, they've just been blocking it out. And that's the one piece of data that's really spoken to these health professionals to say, hmm, maybe I shouldn't be treating these students all the same. Maybe these students actually need something in addition from me. And that's really what sort of informed the, the instrument that was developed based on uh, the focus groups of the young people as well as the professionals, like what really is important for them to be aware of and asking. Also, an issue that we deal with in schools is when a student's being bullied and a parent needs to be informed or a guardian needs to be informed, um, you know, disclosing the nature of the bullying can often out students. So kind of encouraging a relationship between, you know, the guidance counselor, whoever the point person is with that student to discuss the nature of the bullying. And then how do we discuss this with your parents? You know, they need to be notified, but we're sensitive to the fact that maybe you're not out, maybe it's not safe for you to be out at home or you're not ready or any of those things. So giving school health professionals language and tools to be able to do that without making the situation worse for the student. Because uh, oftentimes maybe students aren't going to report it because they don't want their parents to find out that they're being picked on for being gay or lesbian or something. Um, so they just deal with it instead of actually going to their guidance counselors or teachers or mental health professionals who might accidentally out them you know, from good intentions. An important aspect of the tool that we developed in the, in the study, it's an intake form. So it's important for uh, school health professionals to sort of be able to be aware of certain parts of an LGBT youth experience and identity. But sometimes it can be really hard to sort of bridge that gap between the youth and the professional. It can be hard to like, you know, put yourself out there and actually talk about what you're experiencing. So I think, um, you know, the results of the study are really helpful in that aspect, sort of helping bridge that gap between students and health professionals and giving them the language and the tools that they need to really connect with students and, you know, help them actually with the disparities that they're experiencing. The you talk So out of all this work, the um, focus group and interviews, you've developed an instrument um, and you alluded to kind of what that does. It gives language and helps to bridge the gap between um, students and health professionals. So could you explain a little more about how the instrument is structured and what it looks like and how it's used? So the instrument is really um, meant to be a conversation tool, so really to enable uh, uh, school health professionals to have the language. So it includes things like name and pronoun, but it also asks people about the context. For example, do you feel safe? Um, uh, do you have support? Asks about bullying. Um, asks about mental health needs. So really uh, is a short way to be able to guide a conversation. Um, accompanying that form is a training guide and manual. So the actual tool itself, the training of the tool is actually part of the intervention itself. Um, and so that is, uh, you know, that's been the piece that we heard uh, that people wanted to be trained and then be able to train other people. So that's part of the process uh, that we conceive of with the instrument. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good way for the school health professional to get a better big picture idea of what's going on instead of looking at an isolated incident, um, because we know as far as transgender students go, they have a much higher likelihood of, you know, things like attempting suicide, self-harm, substance abuse, those things. So if a teacher or school health professional sees that a student's holding one of these identities, it's important for them to think of, okay, what else might be affected? Are they you know, experiencing depression? Are they experiencing anxiety? Things like that, um, that while being trans isn't a mental health issue in itself, the way that 
society and schools treat trans kids can lead to mental health issues. So just being more aware of that and getting the bigger picture instead of focusing on every little symptom that comes up around the student's identity. Yeah, the holistic nature of the instrument to to look at the whole person, the whole the whole student's life, and that includes family. Because one of the things we mentioned earlier um, was that family is a difficult can be a difficult uh, interface, uh, and I think a lot of school health professionals are looking for guidance around how exactly to do that. So the form also asks about you know relationship with family, being out or not to family, uh, what pronouns does a person use if they were to call the family, those kinds of uh, those kinds of things to help facilitate the process. Parental support is the single biggest factor that contributes to a young person's well-being. And I think for uh, counselors and nurses to be paying attention to that, having a conversation with students, recognizing that supporting uh, students' relationship with their parents or supporting parents directly could possibly be the single biggest, um, most important thing they do uh, in supporting that student and improving their experience. It's wonderful. I mean, the, what was developed, and, and Lauren has been really involved with this a lot, and she and I are going to be uh, um, Sari's research uh, partner in this and research assistant, and uh, we're going to be meeting with counselors and nurses next week to be presenting the instrument to them to continuing to get feedback regarding its usefulness and in in um, along with what Sari was saying, training them about how to use it. Because even though it uh, it's more of a conversation starter or uh, than a checklist, it it is in some way a checklist as well, which people really appreciate. Like, okay, did I did I cover most of these issues? Whether it's uh, the family or substance use or uh, sexual health and decision making and healthy relationships and depression, just some of the most important factors that you want to make sure that people aren't missing. And so how do you envision uh, that the instrument is used? You said it's a conversation starter. Is it something that uh, a guidance counselor pulls out when somebody's in distress? Or is it something that is that everybody should be using as an evaluation tool? You know, because um, like was said earlier, there are people who are not out as transgender or gender nonconforming. So how do you envision that tool being used? I mean, or how would you like to see it be used? There's an assumption of heterosexuality and an assumption of being cisgender. Just not assuming that, okay, this student obviously is not part of this community, so these things don't apply. When really, you know, sometimes when people are closeted, they, they're overcompensating or something. So to be able to recognize that even though that issue isn't on the forefront, that it shouldn't just be totally left out of the conversation. Uh, but obviously when you do have a student like in a crisis situation or you're dealing with a student who's out and has harassment, then that tool I think would be more useful, but I don't think that it's necessarily only for that situation. Yeah, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I do believe that I think um, one of the most important uses of it would be if a student came in and, you know, was in distress, uh, because it's just a, a really great way to sort of break down the important points and assess the situation that a student is going through, especially if you already know that the student is LGBTQ identifying. But as you said, Landon, it's, sometimes there's a gray area there. But 
Uh, yeah, I think it's it's just something that's important for, you know, guidance counselors or nurses or any school health professionals to have to be able to interact with students in a way that otherwise they wouldn't have the language for or they wouldn't really have the tools to be able to, you know, interact with them in a way that covers all the bases in terms of what they're experiencing. So the tool can be used in many ways. I think we're still... Um, looking at some of the best ways to use it, you know, and I think that's the next part of this work. Um, but one thing is that it is, you know, we mentioned it being a conversation starter, it can be filled out in different sections, if you will, like that is in one conversation, there's one piece in another conversation, there's another piece so that it's, it's a kind of ongoing getting to know the student. Um, and so, uh, you know, in some cases, uh, because it's not sort of mandated, obviously, right now, there's some cases where the nurse would, you know, use that in every student. Uh, there may be some cases where a nurse pulls it out uh, when they're feeling like there's a specific student or a handful of students that they want to uh, get a little more information about, and they're not exactly sure how to ask the questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of the handbook that accompanies the tool is a learning piece. So that helps. There's scripts for how to actually ask questions. There's resources. And those are things that the school professionals we spoke with were interested in. And I think that's an important piece of not only talking to school health professionals in our research, but also working with the YCAB, the Youth and Community Advisory Board, of which Landon and Akira are a part of. We also had school health professionals on that, uh, helping to co-develop the instrument. So it's part of that process, too, of kind of bringing all those perspectives together. So the Youth and Community Advisory Board um, was obviously crucial in developing the kinds of questions and addressing specific issues um, so maybe, um, Landon and Kira, you can talk about what your role was on that and, um, and then feel free. Anybody can chime in about how the YCAB interfaced with the research team and, and what insights came out of that, that process. So the YCAB, um, so we met online, uh, through just a conferencing uh, software, and we met with the research team and members of the YCAB, which were, you know, LGBTQ youth who are currently in the school system or um, health professionals in the school system. So basically what we did was throughout the process of running focus groups and developing the tool, we just sort of looked at it and really gave feedback um, in reference to, you know, the issues that are addressed, whether we think they're important issues, um, whether we think other issues should be highlighted, whether we think the language is appropriate, and um, just sort of being a board to look at the tool and sort of put it, run it through our own experiences and, and see if it really... Um, is accomplishing what we're we're meaning for it to accomplish. Yeah, I think the language was a big piece. That the ideas were always there, but how do you best communicate that in a way that isn't you know alienating to some people? Something that's inclusive and meaningful, um, and also just other things to think about, um, like outside of just the regular mental health issues, things like substance abuse, things like even like academic trouble, like that could be led back to bullying. I think just getting some of those secondary issues included um, in the language was part of what we kind of contributed um, as being either in schools or recently out of schools, um, and especially the, the mental health professionals in schools could say, these are the issues that we're seeing. We really think that this should be one of the questions or should be considered to be part of this intake because in their community or in their own experiences, that's something that needed to be included. Um, so things like names and pronouns were included, but 
thinking about, okay, but how about a separate question for what names and pronouns does your family use for you? Um, just to kind of avoid those situations where you get some information from the student, not all of it, and then, you know, with good intentions, accidentally outing them or making things worse or making them feel uncomfortable, like they can't tell you who they are because their parents don't know. So kind of making a document that creates a more confidential relationship between the student and the mental health professional so that the student knows that this isn't just something that's going to be written down and then sent to the family. And and as you spoke to a little bit, I think having the YCAB was such an important part of the study because, you know, um, as LGBTQ youth who are in the school system, we know best what sort of questions, you know, might not work for us. Like, like, implementing that secondary question, like, what do you use with your family, was a really important thing for us, because we know firsthand how that can be something that affects LGBTQ students if you're you're not out to your family. And for the school health professionals, you know, they're the ones who can really bring to this, um, the research team and say, you know, this is, these are ways we would be likely to use this. These are ways we would not be likely to use this. These are ways that it would not be helpful to us. So yeah, that's just why um, the board was just really important for sort of keeping um, the tool in a way that was really, you know, linked in with the community that it's trying to serve and just really being referential to the issues that we face. Um, to me, I mean, I, I learned so much more, I think, from the Youth Community Advisory Board <laughs> than I would have ever hoped and I would never want to do this project without them, you know. And I think for me, when we talk about the research team, the YCAB is a member of the research yeah. team. You know, that is that I just that's how I conceptualize it. And that's really, I think, how it should be in all these projects. So yeah. it's really what the the beauty and the creativity of this project, it may it may not need to be said, but I think that this connection and relationship between the ivory tower and academia with people on the ground level who are most affected by it and people who are serving the students being at the core of this project and forming it at every level was really um it's it's um unusual in some ways and was um really instrumental in why it was why we came up with actually i think a really quality instrument that will make a difference in the field you know, uh, as another example of the way that uh, feedback uh, was integrated, um, so Dr. Valerie Earnshaw, who's another uh, researcher who's part of this, who's now at the, she used to be at Children's, she's now at the University of Delaware, um, she uh, brought in uh, some educational folks from education school uh, at the University of Delaware to help us write the kind of curricula that would accompany the form. And that was really out of the school nurses and our YCAB saying, well, wait, what there needs to be something accompanying this, you know, what is that going to look like? Give there me needs, a list yeah, of there needs to be a curriculum, you know, so we turned to the folks who were great at that, thing, you know, are great at that, which are uh, often yeah. in, in schools of education and, uh, and brought them uh, to work with us. So uh, that was an example of how that yeah. was directly involved. Well, I think it speaks to, you know, you're talking about involving the community, but also involving different mm-hmm. disciplines to bring those skills to bear on something like this, which has many different components. It's, gathering data, it's transmitting information, it's teaching, and yeah. And Sarah, it really does speak to your leadership in, in, in involving all of us and really uh, allowing people to bring our strengths to it and contribute from our area of, uh, of ex- expertise and experience. So thank you. Thank you. It's been an amazing process. 
one thing I'll note is that in the literature, um, stigma-based bullying, so uh, stigma being sort of specifically due to a, a devalued identity uh, or characteristics or attributes, you could call that bias-based bullying, that that's actually associated more strongly with worse health outcomes than general bullying. Um, and so what we have on the forum is not just uh, asking about LGBTQ status, but we also ask about race, ethnicity. We also ask about other identities that would confer such bias-based bullying potentially. So in that way, I do feel like it was actually a little bit broader mm -hmm. even than the work that we had set out to do initially. In Dr. Paul Poteet from Boston College, that's his area of expertise is bias-based bullying and the disproportionate negative outcomes for people who students who experienced that, and he was part of our advisory committee from the very beginning, too, mm -hmm. in crafting this and informing it. So there were a number of people along with um, Dr. Inshaw, too. Yeah. So do you think there are applications outside of the LGBTQ community for this type of intervention for what you've learned here? I mean, you just talked about bias in other ways besides gender minorities. Yeah, I mean, sexual and gender minorities are one sort of aspect of identity where stigma could happen. Um, you know, actually in our study, we did find that uh, the youth of color, we did a specific focus group around LGBTQ youth of color, really reported a lot of race-based uh, harassment and bullying in addition to uh, LGBTQ-related bullying. So, um, so yes, the answer is yes, because we all in occupy intersectional places and spaces. Yeah, I think it's part of the, the wider context of just cultural competency that a lot of schools do that they're including things like race, religion, you know, people's different backgrounds, but being LGBT also can fall under that cultural competency and being able to see where those intersect, um, you know, someone's LGBT identity and their faith might intersect in a way that could be difficult for them. They might have trouble finding support in that specific community that they're in. So being able to look at it from those lenses of this student not only needs support around just gender identity or sexual orientation, but also around their faith or their race or, or any other attribute that might be targeted because it's a minority group. So I think in that way, it's just part of that broader conversation that a lot of schools are dealing with separately instead of integrating it with all of these other social emotional issues. Okay, so Landon Akira, let's talk about, I want to ask you, what your experience um, was like being part of this research? Had you been a part of a research project like this before? Um, and what did you, I don't know, did you, what did you learn from this? And what can you take away from this experience? Um, so I haven't been a part of a research project like this per se before. I am on a patient family advisory council for UMass Worcester because that's where I go for my doctor stuff. And, um, of course, I'm also a part of the um, Safe Schools program for LGBTQ youth. And I run, I ran a training at my school. I've done numerous sort of transgender-related trainings. So I'm definitely in on, you know, the, uh, the issues about school health professionals and LGBTQ youth in school. That's definitely sort of my field. But I had never worked on a real, like, research project like this before. So it was really an amazing experience for me, especially as a young person, to get into it. I was very excited when Jeff invited me to join the board at one of our meetings in Malden for the um, Safe Schools program. So it's just been an amazing experience um, for me, especially talking with different LGBTQ youth who might be normally out of my social circle or talking with school health professionals or otherwise. I mean, 
Otherwise, the only school health professionals I really interact with are the ones in my school. But it was amazing to interact with the broad, broader community and just to be a part of something where I really felt like my voice mattered as a part of the community that is served by the project. And yeah, and it really made me excited about doing research in the future because something I'm very interested in. Yeah, I mean, I've done a lot of stuff around gender identity and um, mental health, but as far as like long-term research projects, I haven't really been involved in any, um, at least not something of this scale. Um, so yeah, I was really excited to be involved just because I have not only a lot of experience with being a transgender person, but somebody who has dealt with the mental health field, you know, since before I transitioned and after I transitioned and how those attitudes have changed and how to best form, um, you know, a good relationship with a patient who, who is transgender. Um, so, you know, also part of my identity is being um, a substance abuse um, for person in recovery. So all of those sort of areas, I felt like it would be good to include in this. So I just really wanted to make sure that I could kind of lift up people's voices who might not be super heard, um, especially when it comes to substance abuse in the trans community. It's more of a taboo topic, especially students don't want to talk about it because they don't want to get in trouble. Um, but it really is a safety issue. Um, and ways to reduce that harm is to get them into some sort of, you know, either therapy or getting them connected to a group. So the best ways to do that, how to intervene with that on a way that isn't, at least in my experience, you're focusing on the mental health stuff or you're focusing on the trans stuff, kind of focusing on them both as intertwined issues that make up this person's identity. The research shows that in addition to um, a caring adult in someone's life, which if it can be the parent, that's that's wonderful. Often the school person is that person either complimenting or in, in place of. Uh, but what always comes up in research that contributes to the resilience of a young person in addition to that is opportunities for uh, meaningful leadership and contributions. And so to be in a leadership position, to be able to be involved in this way in research is an example of, of being able to contribute in a meaningful way and having that leadership position. Hmm. Kira and Landon, how do you want to contribute more in the future? Kira, you said you want to do research. Yeah. What are your, do you have plans to continue this work in any way? Definitely. Well, um, I'm going to be an incoming freshman at Clark University next fall, and um, I'm really hoping to involve LGBTQ studies in uh, just my future academic endeavors. Um, I, I'm probably going to be a history major, so I'm, I'm definitely someone who is interested, so, so interested in, you know, connecting, as you said, Jeff, the ivory tower of academia with um, just, you know, LGBTQ folks who otherwise might feel pushed out of the discipline or uh, might feel like they can't connect with, you know, um, professionals in the, in the health community or in the academic community. So um, I'm definitely interested in being a part of research projects or curriculum building projects um, throughout my college career and my future, future career after college. Um, and just, just continuing to do that because being a trans advocate is a very important part of my identity. And, you know, it's something that I feel very equipped to do because I'm, you know, very comfortable talking to people and I like educating. So it's really something that I want to stay involved with um, through the future. And I'm really glad that I got to do this. It's sort of my starting point for being involved in research. Yeah, I mean, I also want to continue doing work as far as LGBT advocacy, but also mental health and substance abuse, um, kind of stigma shattering kind of, I guess, um, because I'm kind of an open book when it comes to this stuff. You know, even if a question is really offensive or personal, I'll answer it because I figure I'm comfortable doing that. I can 
kind of handle those interactions, whereas not every trans person should be expected to do that. So if I can get any opportunity to let people know what it's actually like to be a trans person, um, I'm totally open to all those opportunities. So research as well, um, especially in schools, just because being a transgender young person, you're spending so much of your time in schools, um, either in the classroom or in the spaces that aren't really monitored where a lot of the bullying goes on with like bathrooms, buses, locker rooms, overnight accommodations. Um, and a lot of times trans people's voices aren't really heard when we talk about those specific issues. It's the school personnel, it's people who aren't trans coming up with solutions for trans people instead of involving us in those conversations. So yeah, I mean, whatever sort of research comes up around this, I would be happy to participate in because not every trans person can be out for safety and not everyone should be expected to. So Jeff and Sari, now I want to ask you, where do you see this research going in the future? How do you see this impacting health and improving health? Um, so that, you know, the idea, uh, the wonderful thing about Harvard Catalyst is they support kind of seed projects, you know, and this is one of those to, to get some data and do some pilot work and really try some ideas out. Um, and so we've successfully done that. And our next step is to look toward other funding. Um, and one of the things we've been talking about is with our partnerships in Delaware, that we might do some research in Massachusetts and in Delaware, uh, and we could really roll out this instrument and do it in a more formalized way. Um, so in that way, we're hoping that it will change practice, right? It will change uh, school health professionals' ability to intervene. Uh, it will change uh, the culture, hopefully, of the places where we use it. Um, if we could just clone um, Jeff Parati, who's here, we would do that and send him around to every school. Um, however, the research in in in, in lieu of that, <laughs> um, the the research uh, really will be the way that we proceed to address hopefully these disparities uh, in in real time. And I would love to be able to clone Kira and Landon uh, to think about their expertise and how they have really informed this project at every level. And I think also I've been involved with the American Psychological Association's program on promoting uh, healthy outcomes for LGBTQ students. And they've primarily worked with the same audience, um, health professionals, including nurses and counselors. And I, I think that partnering with these organizations that can get this instrument out there uh, further, um, we're also working with the, the national organizations of, of superintendents, of school, of the Council of uh, School Health Officers and um, s school administrators. So I think that people are really uh, eager to have some of these concrete tools that, that they can give to their people who are on the front line that could really make the biggest difference in, in reaching students. And uh, so we see that there are ways that this can really make a big difference in Massachusetts and beyond. All right. Well, thank you all for coming in. It was really great to have this conversation with you. Thanks, thank Brendan. you. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.